Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Yeah, I think we're going to try to go ahead and get started if we're just about, um, we almost get everybody in the room. Um, hello, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program. Um, which uh, leaves me with the pleasure of um, hosting our research seminar. Uh, we hope, we look forward to you uh, joining us uh, on Thursdays throughout the academic year. We've got a wonderful uh, lineup of speakers. Um, one of the uh, fun things about this seminar for me is it's not only very intellectually stimulating, it's exciting to see researchers come through with a diversity of perspectives, but I regularly find it truly inspiring. And um, uh, on that note, I'd like to talk for a moment as I introduce our current speaker about what I find inspiring in her. Uh, Iris Bonet is a professor of public policy here at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is the director of our Women in Public Policy program. She also co-directs the Behavioral Insights Group with uh, Professor Max Bazerman here. Um, one of the, when we talk about this gender work, I think we're all acutely aware of the work that needs to get done what I find inspiring so often in recent years listening to Iris is not only her conviction, but her persuasiveness that gender gaps can indeed be closed. <laughs> and, um, and so what we're going to hear today is a little bit um, about Iris's forthcoming book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. And um, it is wonderfully refreshing approach to genuinely saying, what can we do? And, um, and I'll stop there, and we look forward to hearing the talk. Thank you, Iris, Thank you. for Thank you so much for this kind introduction. Um, and given that this is the first seminar of the semester and even of the academic year, uh, and many of you, I presume, are new to the Kennedy School and to Harvard. Uh, I also thought I would introduce some of my colleagues here around the table. I have a number of faculty here, and hopefully I see all of them, but if I don't, please, please do let me know. Uh, we have Dara Cohen here. She's a faculty here at the Kennedy School. If you're interested in gender and international security, go talk to Dara. I didn't warn my faculty colleagues, so now you'll be overrun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Max Bezerman, Hannah just mentioned him. He is co-director of the Center for Public Leadership. He's also a professor at the Business School. And together we chair the Behavioral Insights Group here at uh, Harvard. And what we're trying to do is to bring behavioral science to bear on problems that you all care about from uh, the environment to ethics to what you will hear me talk about later, diversity. Then we have Mary Britton from the Sociology Department um, right here. Mary is a specialist on gender and in particular interested in gender and women's roles in Asia and in particular in Japan. And Mary also has initiated a new group here at Harvard that I think maybe the first time, um, at least in my memory, that a number of us across departments, across school work on gender together, which is called 
gig, which is not the best acronym ever, <laughs> for lack of for a better word, gender inequality group. So we'll, yeah, we'll probably reach out to all of you for something snazzier. <laughs> and then we have Claudia Golden next to Mary. She's a professor at the Harvard e Economics Department, um, also part of this group. Uh, she's a, an economist and has written a lot on economic history, in particular on gender, but many other topics as well, but in particular on gender and on how <coughs> the relationships between, between men and women, including, for example, the wage gap, have evolved um, <coughs> over the years. Kathleen McGinn, also a member of GIG from the Harvard Business School. She, uh, Kathleen is in organizational behavior and has done a lot of work on understanding <coughs> women's roles, men and women's roles, I should say, in organizations, and is now in particular interested currently in the role of mothers and how mothers can combine <coughs> career and family, um, and how mothers see themselves uh, in this world. She's currently on leave, so um, <laughs> we have to respect her. <laughs> She's not really here. She, that's really, yeah, rule 101 when you're on sabbatical. <laughs> We have Victoria Batson, she's the executive director of the Women in Public Policy program. Victoria is a specialist on uh, gender and politics. And you will, if you are um, involved with WAP, you will see much more of her in the seminar and elsewhere around campus. Hannah has, um, you've already met Hannah, but she hasn't talked about her own work, although I will talk about her work in just a second. Uh, she's been a leader um, thinking about the role of gender in negotiation. You might be from another school that I don't know about. Would you mind if I don't hear yourself you're another faculty member? Otherwise, I think I'm going to get started. We also have the whole WAP team here. Um, if you could raise your hands for a second, Women in Public Policy Program. We have an amazing team putting all of this together and much, much more that I'm sure you'll learn more about if you come to our open house this afternoon. Okay, with that, um, I wanna talk today about what works. Uh, in terms of gender equality, and as I mentioned, use behavioral insights or behavioral economics as kind of my approach to closing gender gaps. It's gonna be a somewhat um, unusual talk for me. Uh, it will mainly consist of pictures, no tables, no numbers, no regressions. Um, but it is uh, based on a book that I am actually handing in the manuscript of next week. So it's kind of very close to my heart. The structure that I'm going to use for my talk is also relatively straightforward. I first want to talk about one of the problems, one of the problems causing gender inequality. And the problem that I'm going to focus on is unconscious bias. Then secondly, I want to talk about some of the approaches that we have been using in the past to address or overcome un unconscious bias and what evidence we have, whether they've been working or not. And then thirdly, and that's going to be the bulk of my talk, I want to talk about the promise of behavioral design, of how we can use insights from psychology, behavioral economics, and really many other disciplines to start closing gender gaps. So on unconscious bias, this is a picture of Heidi Roizen. Uh, Heidi Roizen is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and Kathleen wrote a case on Heidi Roizen in 2000. The case is about what Heidi is doing to advance um, her network to do her business, really, and how she became a venture capitalist. Heidi is a very, very successful entrepreneur. And then a few years later, some of our colleagues took um, Kathleen's case and replaced Heidi with Howard. And everything else is identical in the case. 
But they then taught this case to half their students, with the protagonist being called Howard, and the other half um, with the protagonist being called Heidi. And some of you are nodding. Uh, maybe a professor has already used the case on you. I actually think it's a great didactic tool to use in our classrooms for people to experience what it feels like to learn from Heidi versus to learn from Howard. But also, as you might fear or expect, people like Heidi less than Howard, although they do think that Heidi is equally as competent as Howard. So it's not the competence that they don't like, but they just kind of don't like Heidi. Um, some of the worst evidence that I've seen, which personally was very depressing for me, was that students, including women, report that they learn less from Heidi, even though everything they do is completely identical. So that's kind of one indication for unconscious bias. But there's also um, research using a number of data points from the field that suggests the same thing. This is now based on Claudia Goldin's and Cecilia Rouse's work on how orchestras select musicians. Some of you might know that many of the major orchestras now have their musicians audition behind curtains. This didn't used to be the case. I think the Boston Symphony Orchestra was the first one to introduce the practice in 1952, but then it hasn't been adopted for a very long time. And it kind of resurfaced as an option to evaluate musicians in the 70s, 70s and 80s, a number of additional orchestras started to adopt the practice. And it turns out that if you audition behind the curtain and you are a woman, your likelihood of advancing to the second round is increased by about 50%. So blind evaluations, in many ways, would be amazing. We could blind ourselves to all of your demographic characteristics and we could actually focus on your performance, not just in music, but in many other professions as well. But blindness is not necessarily practical. For many of the organizations that you've probably worked in or some of the jobs that you've had before, we cannot necessarily evaluate people blindly. Although I should say it's a bit of a footnote, um, some former students of mine are currently developing a new tool to actually help organizations blind themselves to demographic uh, characteristics of their applicants as long as possible. So there's hope even on blindness. But certainly Claudia's work for me was important because it demonstrated the power of bias, kind of so forcefully. If you'd like to learn more about how biased you are and you haven't actually taken this test, this is a test that uh, Masri Bernacci and Tony Greenwald um, developed, Mazarin is at the Heart Psychology Department, and it's called Implicit Harvard at EDU. You can log on and you will join thousands, now millions of people have already taken this test. And it is safe for me to predict that you will find out that you are racist <laughs> and sexist and any other kind of isms that you don't want to be. Why is that? Because seeing is believing. If you don't see male kindergarten teachers or female professors, for that matter, we don't naturally associate those jobs with men or women, respectively. So what have we been doing? So there a lot of effort in the past, and when I say past, I mean maybe roughly the last 30 to 40 years, has been spent on helping people navigate the system. Or you might rephrase it and say, in training programs. Now, 
even though I'm going to tell you in just a moment that we don't have a ton of evidence that they work well, don't hear me as saying we should just discontinue those. But we should take a very careful look about what aspects of these kinds of training programs work. So I have diversity training, negotiation training, leadership training up here. And I've tried very hard to find randomized controlled trials evaluating the impact of these kinds of trainings. If you're new to the school, randomized controlled trials, for many of us, are the gold standard to establish causality. So what we literally do is we learn from the natural sciences and we run clinical trials. So we give half of, half of you the medicine and the other half of the group the placebo and ideally you're randomly selected to be either in the treatment group or the control group. And then we try to see what works. Now you can already see why this is a challenge for training programs because typically either people self-select to participate in a training program. So it might be the advanced people already who come to our training programs and then they leave them enlightened and we're very happy that they are now enlightened, but maybe we just did a good job selecting them. So that's one of the problems. Another one is when you work with corporations, they typically select the high potential employees to participate in these leadership development programs exactly because they believe they are high potential and they think just adding a little bit more training would actually do the trick. So we don't have a ton of evidence, but um, uh, I'll give you just a little bit of the kind of, the kind of things that seem to be emerging. The first one is that mentorship and sponsorship, there's a bit of debate on those, but let me just say mentorship or sponsorship in one bucket might actually be quite effective. So my own, my own um, academic um, discipline, economics, has started a mentorship leadership training program for women, for young academics um, in 2006. So we meet once a year at the American Economic Association meetings, big meeting, 5,000 people, and realizing two things, that we don't have enough female economics professors, and two, that in contrast to many other disciplines, there is a gender gap in promotions in economics. A number of uh, professors have gotten together saying, we need to do something for these young women assistant professors and kind of try to enable them to be more successful in their careers. And I'm telling you the, um, the story because the beauty was that about 100 people applied every year, and we picked 50 of them randomly out of a hat to participate in the program, and the other 50 was put on a wait list, could we apply next year? This turned out to be a real experiment. <coughs> we could then follow these students which had gotten the treatment and see students, these are assistant professors, excuse me, these assistant professors, follow them over the years to see whether the treatment really affected their productivity and their likelihood of promotion and staying in the profession. And it turns out it did matter. So four of the founding professors recently wrote a paper on it. And it turns out that this mentoring leadership training program worked. But it is a relatively heavy-handed approach, I have to tell you. So having taught in the program, it's a two-day program that does many of the things that many other programs do as well. You know, some of the kind of the techniques or skills that you need in our profession of how to write a paper or give a talk or where to publish and things of that sort, some leadership negotiation training. But then, importantly, also working with the person on a paper that she brought to the workshop, and then um, staying in touch with the person basically for the rest of her life. So <laughs> I, I'm describing it to you because it's relatively heavy-handed. Um, 
that real mentorship means it's not just one off and then you're gone, but it kind of, you know, the person can call you and say, I've just had this very difficult discussion with my department chair, what should I do, can I negotiate my salary, can I do this or that, L lots of these things. So you kind of see where I'm going. So um, mentorship and sponsorship also has been shown to be correlated with the diversity of the workforce by um, work by Frank Dobin of the Harvard Sociology Department. Now, the beauty of his work is that he's worked with about 3,000 companies, so a large sample, and was trying just to understand when we, when we look at what companies are doing, what of what, what, which of the aspects of the things they're doing is correlated with an increasingly diverse workforce? Now, this is just correlation, so he can't say one causes the other, but it still gives us some insights into kind of things that A, companies are doing, and B, whether they're in any way correlated with any of the things that they want to achieve. Turns out that mentorship, in fact, is positively correlated with the gender diversity and other diversity <coughs> aspects of your workforce. He also found some other things that worked less well. So, for example, diversity training turns out to have basically a correlation coefficient to zero, which is hard to achieve, <laughs> but basically has no correlation um, to the diversity of your workforce. So the training programs um, kind of have had have played a huge role, $8 billion um, dollars are spent on <coughs> training a year in the United States. Um, so have played a very important role. We know very little about how effective they are. And we know a bit more about some of the other aspects um, of leadership training that, might be more, that you might want to refer to, and I refer to in the book as capacity building, which go beyond just training people, giving them the skills, and then leaving them on their own, but really helping them succeed in the environments they're in. And one of kind of the corpus of work that has been important for me in shaping my thinking has been led by Hannah and Kathleen, as I mentioned before. And it has focused on uh, training or helping women succeed in negotiations. And one of the important takeaways uh, for me, or two important takeaways for me, was first that it is actually risky for women to negotiate, and I'll explain in a moment. But secondly, I don't want to end there, but there are ways to overcome some of that risk. But the first insight was important to me, but that's why it's so big here on my slide, is that like Heidi, you might not be able to afford to negotiate as assertively as your male colleagues because gender norms work against you. And that's what the researchers call social backlash. So people might like you less or might be less willing to work with you if you behave this very same way as Howard. And that's kind of the Heidi, the Heidi example. But Hannah and Kathleen have run a number of experiments to actually show that this is happening. And Linda Backcock, another um, colleague of ours, wrote um, an amazing book on the topic called Women Don't Ask. So she's a third collaborator on their project. And exactly kind of talking about this. So why do women not ask? Not because they're just for forgot to ask, but or they don't like asking. Although there's a bit there too, but, but most importantly because they're actually rational and understand the environments they're working. And so much of um, Hannah's uh, more recent research has focused on, so what do we do? How do, can we overcome that bias? Or how we, can we overcome backlash? And some of the things that you might want to take away, but read more of her and Kathleen's work, are um, things such as transparency. 
So if you know what's negotiable, it's easier for you to actually justify your asking. Another important insight is, and that actually was particularly important for me, if you negotiate on somebody else's behalf, and I'm you now, given there were majority women here, you uh, meaning women, the gender bias goes away. Why is that? Because all of a sudden you don't have a role conflict anymore. You can be an attorney and be a lioness on behalf of your client and negotiate really, really hard. And that is completely fine with being a woman. You can be a doctor negotiating on behalf of your patient or a professor negotiating on behalf of a student. That's when the bias goes away. It actually lifts women up, makes them more successful in negotiations, has very little effect on men. So two important insights. One is increasing transparency. The second one is negotiating on behalf of um, somebody else. They already point to kind of where I want to go with the rest of my talk. <laughs> and that is transparency is not something that you yourself can be doing. Transparency is something that is in the environment. <clears throat> you need to either be an HR manager or you know, some other person with authority in your organization to think more about how to make what's negotiable more transparent. Or you can be President Obama, not bad either, who signed <laughs> an order um, last year, 2014, yeah, June 2014, uh, requiring more transparency and wage bans. So there's quite a bit of happening in that whole transparency um, realm that I'll revisit a bit later. Uh, but it, it does point to the importance of the environment in which you work. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about, I'm going to give you three thoughts on three different domains where behavioral insights might be useful. The first one is talent management. The second one is how you can redesign the environments in which you work, learn, or live. And then finally, I'll talk a bit about diversity and inclusion. I'm happy to stop here for just a moment so you can catch your breath. <laughs> but also, any questions, comments? By the way, I'm very happy to have this. We didn't, we didn't specify the rules of the game. I'm very happy to have this very interactive. Can I, yeah. can I just invite you for um, people who <clears throat> haven't been in this conversation for a while to just talk about what you mean by behavioral insights? Mm. So, um, thank you for the question. Uh, I have lots of examples which hopefully will make clear what I'm going to describe to you now in the abstract. Um, but behavioral scientists, um, for quite a long time, have been trying to understand how people think. And in particular, behavioral economists have been uh, interested in deviations from the canonical model of thinking in economics, which is rationality. And so for, for about 20 years, researchers have studied deviations from this kind of norm um, of how people ought to behave um, compared to how real people really do behave. And that has led to a Nobel Prize in economics being given to a psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a beautiful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, a book that I recommend. Then, a few, year a few years later, um, another group of particularly behavioral economists um, and a lawyer uh, came up with, uh, realized that behavioral insights shouldn't just be used to describe how people deviate from what they ought to be doing, but can actually inform how we change behavior. So that's different from just describing the mistakes that people make, but now actually learning from those mistakes and saying, 
there's something, there's some rhythm, some pattern in the mistakes that people make, and we can actually use that to inform our policymaking. And we can make better policies by using these insights into how our minds work. And that led to the book Nudge, that some of you might know, um, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, uh, published in 2008, which then influenced kind of a number of us to think more about the nudges that we can use to, um, Max and I like to say, make the world a better place. Of course, nudging can be used for better or worse. So I'm not pretending that there aren't sinister goals that we might have. So we can also use nudges for, for, for bad purposes. But you should think of these behavioral insights or the nudge or behavioral design as another instrument in your toolbox to affect behavior. Nudges, in that sense, don't tell you where to go. You or the political system has to decide whether you want to go from A to B or from A to C or from A to D, but then people like myself can come in and help you get there. So that's how I would describe kind of behavioral insights. They build on insights into how our minds work. They aren't the typical instruments that you might learn about in your standard economics class, such as incentives or regulations or constraints, but they reframe, reshape <coughs> the environment in which you work. And I'll have, I'll have lots of examples in just a moment. Thank you for the question. Yes? You said that the diversity training doesn't work well. Yeah. I, I was interested to hear why you think it's done So <coughs> I think what I tried to say, and I might not have been quite as clear, is I know of zero evidence that it is working. And um, I think I have looked very carefully um, at the evidence that is out there, and I think the fact that we know nothing has two reasons. Um, one is what we do know is based on correlations. Um, and that is very good work. Um, and it is to be taken seriously. But it doesn't necessarily give us a causal pathway. But that work, based on correlations, suggests that there is no relationship between whether or not a company, about 3,000 companies in the United States, have a diversity program or not, and the diversity of their workforce. But that already, even not worrying about causality, is pretty concerning to me that we might have an issue there. But um, I, I am trying to be very careful not to say that I have evidence to prove that diversity training doesn't work. What I am trying to say is I have no evidence to prove that it does work. And although we are spending $8 billion a year, at this point, um, I, I don't know of any study showing that it has any positive impact. My other, which I didn't talk about, but just a footnote. Um, so in the book, I spent much more time talking about other evidence on how de-biased trainings work. So there's other biases. Gender bias is just one bias. People have tons of biases, and behavioral science has been studying many of these biases. Overconfidence, for example, being one of them, loss aversion, lots of other kinds of biases. And generally, the field has been trying, I'd say 20 or 30 years since the 80s, and so that makes it more 30 years, to de-bias people by, by offering training to them. And generally at this point, and many of those studies have been done in experiments, so we can have, you know, we kind of can show what works, what doesn't work. And I think at this point we have to say it has had very limited success. You know, not complete loss, but very limited success. Let me give you one example. So Linda Babcock and George Lowenstein did a very nice paper on them trying to de-bias people from their self-serving biases. So all of us tend to be self-servingly biased. So we perceive the world a bit in our favor. And they've tried kind of 
six different interventions experimentally to see whether we can devise people. And they found some success. So one of the six worked. And that was, in that particular example, walking in your counterpart's shoes and really thinking about, not just walking their counterpart's shoes, but thinking about the counter arguments to my own argument. Right? So really writing down why might I be wrong. So now I'm thinking, great seminar, but then now I should start writing down all the reasons why it's not so great, Teresa is standing there, some of you didn't have food, you know, for others I speak too quickly. Kind of all, so, so that's, that's what they showed. So that's kind of the level at which I try to dissect the data of really trying to understand, you know, what works, what kind of intervention works, which one doesn't work, um, and then, you know, kind of be honest about what you've learned so far. Claudia. Okay. Um, I don't expect an answer right now, but I think that it's important for us to address this at some point, which is what if most of the differences in pay and position are due to something else, or due to the demands of the job? There's no question in my mind, and since you cite my paper as being a foundation of this, there's no question in my mind that this matters, that everything that you're saying matters. What I'm not convinced of is that it matters enough. Yeah. Okay. But I, I think that we should hold yeah. that. But I think it's, it's, it's absolutely essential because if everything else would do mainly to other things, such as women work in large firms, women lawyers work in large law firms, large law, firm, law firms put different demands on you. You move to a smaller law firm, you get paid a lot less, okay? That has very little to do with this, mm -hmm. okay? How much is due to what we economists might call the intrinsic production function, and of course, going through everyone's mind now is that's wrapped up in corporate culture, okay? But how much really is due to something fundamental, and how much is due to something else? Uh, I think that's an excellent point. I am. I, I fear we won't. We don't know the answer. But I, I actually well, think we're I not think in we, disagreement. Well, I think we know a little bit more. Okay. I, I don't think we're in yeah. disagreement in that there are many other factors and including you know your important work on kind of the last chapter where maybe you want to talk a moment about that you know how we how we spend our time um, might be crucially important for women's careers and what demands corporations um, have on women's times me, men's I should just say men's excuse me that was total slippage here <laughs> men's and women's time might explain a huge jump of the inequality that we still but, but see. But I'm, I'm also opening this up to more than the top, more than the people who can actually walk in, more than the people who walk, who work in the corporate sector. I'm expanding that mm. to mm -hmm. a much, much bigger yeah. group. But I'll, so maybe I'll continue because that's actually where I want to go. I want to suggest to you that this is actually relevant not just in the corporate sector, but I'll talk about women in, women politicians in India, I'll talk about students taking tests, I'll talk about lots of things. I think what might be different from um, kind of what you're thinking right now, Claudia, and what I'm trying to argue here is that these behavioral insights are low-hanging fruit. What I'll show you is not rocket science. Most of this is super cheap, can be um, introduced very quickly, and it's really stupid of us not to do it. Kind of that is, I think, the selling point of behavioral insights, <coughs> to say small change, big effect, 
it's not going to close the gender gap. It's not going to, but it, if we're doing so many things so badly, that we could just gain so much by doing them a bit more intelligently. So that's where I'm going. In fact, it's a great segue into this slide, um, which is a slide um, kind of telling you how you should not conduct an interview. Okay, let me tell you, and by the, by the way, whatever I'm telling you now um, is based on experiments. So what my book is trying to do is to bring evidence to bear on this question. And although I don't have the data on my slides, um, that's the background. So here's um, a myth that um, social scientists have been trying to debunk for about 50 years unsuccessfully. So I'm not necessarily optimistic that I'll be the one to actually succeed. But what we've been trying to argue is that the interview is a super bad way to evaluate future performance. And there is tons of evidence suggesting that this is true. Let me tell you about one of the studies which has been particularly helpful to me. Uh, in Texas, uh, a few years back, medical schools were asked by the state of Texas to add more students to their admitted pool at the time when they already had made all their admission decisions. So these are medical schools. They're looking at applicants. They're deciding, um, in this particular case, this particular school chose 150 applicants out of 3,500 who had applied to go to medical school. They've chosen their 150. They've sent out the letters. They've gotten back the responses. They didn't get necessarily the top 150, but in the end, they had all students uh, who had applied who were in the top ranked 300. And then the government comes and says, we don't have enough phys physicians. You all have to increase your in intake by a quarter. So it turns out this is a lovely experiment because now they had to go back into the pool and go back to students they previously had rejected. So we rarely have that opportunity to, to kind of see what, what is the counterfactual. What if we had accepted students who we, we actually didn't accept? And before I tell you the result, uh, let me tell you something about the evaluation. So what they do is about 40% of the evaluation is based on what you might want to call more quantifiable characteristics of the applicant. And that includes GREs, grades, sorry, for non-Americans. This includes your past grades um, and letters of recommendations, and thirdly, kind of your outside experience, which is a little less quantifiable, but still. And then a bit more than 50%, almost 60%, is based on an interview with two faculty members. Okay. So what they found, so then they had to go back into the pool. Of course, all the good applicants had already been snatched up by other schools. So they had to go down to the thousands. So this is a person who was ranked a thousand and had to see, had to admit them. And then now comes the beauty, they followed these people's careers. Did it matter whether they initially came in as number two or number 1002? And as you might expect, zero, zero, right? Now, it gets better. If you take out the noise of the interview, at least you have a little bit of a correlation with their performance. So the interview is just noise. If you just focus on the quantitative uh, um, measures, it would be better in predicting future performance, although not perfect by any means. There's a number of these studies, not a ton, but there's a number of these studies, lots of lab studies, uh, uh, very few field studies. Um, but generally, um, lots of consensus that an unstructured interview is a very bad predictor of future performance. So that's the first takeaway here. A second one is that panel interviews are a particularly bad way to do interviews for a number of reasons. One important one um, that social psychologists have been teaching us for many, many, many years, um, that groups 
don't necessarily, um, are not necessarily able to aggregate what the individual group members bring to the table. It's commonly known as groupthink. There's um, better words to describe it or more scientific words to describe it. But groupthink really means that sometimes groups just fall prey to a bias where they listen to the loudest voice in the room, the alpha animal, whatever it might be, and they're not really able to benefit from all the perspectives. So much better to have three interviewers, for example, um, separately interview the candidate. In fact, Google, which I have, said, I have to say I'm starting to really love as I was writing my book, because they experiment about everything. <laughs> so they also experimented uh, what the optimal number of interviewers at Google is. That's actually not rocket science. And it turns out that they used to have the rule that at least 10 or more people have to interview a candidate because the Google culture is so unique and so different from anything else. So they need at least 10, um, including the CEO, ideally, um, who looked at every application. They, they then now um, analyze the data. It turns out that four is the optimal number for them. After four, ratings start to converge and the additional benefit from an additional interview is, is, is very close to zero. So they're now doing four. Now, there's nothing magic about the number four, but I'm just um, sharing this um, example with you because it's kind of the advice that I'm giving to organizations. Measure what's happening and experiment to know what works for you. So that's the second thing that doesn't work here. The third one, which is, a very, is another interesting myth that I have to be very careful about, is that gender diversity on evaluation committees are going to solve the problem. And not just gender diversity, but more general diversity. Um, I have to be careful here because there might well be, and I'll tell you why I'm saying that, there might well be worlds in which I would say diversity matters, but not when you evaluate the candidate. And here's why. Seeing is believing. If you don't see male kindergarten teachers, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. You will be biased against the male kindergarten teacher or the male nurse. There's um, some really interesting research coming out of Spain. Um, the advantage of Spain is that they evaluate various different things by randomly putting committees together. For example, they evaluate their judges that way, but they also evaluate um, people offer promotion in academia this way. And uh, it turns out, it's quite, quite interesting, uh, that if you come up for promotion in, kind of, uh, in ac academic Spain, then a committee is randomly created to evaluate you. Women are biased against other women when it comes to promotion to associate professors. And I'll explain in a moment why. So <coughs> same-sex bias. Um, I don't like other people who are social professors. And then in-group bias. So this is now favoring women if I'm a woman when it comes to promotion to tenure. And here's why. Here's what the authors um, uh, argue is that when I evaluate you for a job where I still compete with you, this is not yet tenure, I don't want to have more of the same in my university or even in my country, because I might have a theory that, it, that there's gender-specific competition. That we're competing for the 20% you know, female um, uh, professorships in economics, um, which is kind of a true, uh, a true statistic. And, and so I don't want to have more of you, because that's going to decrease my chances. But when I have tenure, which is, which is a job for life, then I look for friends. Then I'm starting to favor women. Then I want to have more of you because now you're not a competition, but I love to hang out with you. Um, this is a very, this is both of those very serious economic papers of lots of data. This is a very um, superficial description of what they found. 
Um, but it did remind me of a paper that Kathleen has written with some collaborators, finding something very similar, that in a firm that uh, you had analyzed, they look at survival rates. When are you five years or 10 years from now? Are you when are you still in the firm? And it turns out that you are less likely to still be around if there are more people like you in your work team. But you're more likely to still be around if you have same sex or same race, even role models. Right? So this is kind of looking up the um, pyramid here. Um, this is the catalyst pyramid. I only have it here just to kind of make that point, which Kathleen um, and Katie Milkman and others made in their paper that having more of people who look like you might not be necessarily rational if you have a theory that there's only 5% jobs for us at the top. Now, in reality, we don't have a ton of evidence suggesting that there is same-sex competition, um, but it's still in people's minds. And so that's why the authors um, of the Spain study and also Kathleen and Katie kind of argue there's something going on in people's minds suggesting that they have um, same-sex competition in mind. Okay, so uh, one more thing I want to say about this before I leave this. Um, while I'm sure they're interviewing more than one person, um, in this image you only have one person. So Max Bazerman, uh, um, Alexander Van Gehen and I did a study kind of looking at how we could debunk the internal referent that is in our heads. So we were trying to understand what could we do against people's reaction to male nurses short of a, short of a curtain, right? and an alternative to a screen. And we built on some insights in behavioral science, um, which are pretty fundamental. And that is that people tend to evaluate things comparatively. So whether or not you feel hot or cold now, or whether or not you like the food that you had for lunch, has something to do with the temperatures that you used to, or the foods that you normally eat. And the same is true when people evaluate job candidates. Um, I want to compare you with a norm or a referent um, of what a typical person in this job look like, looks like. And that's this inter internal stereotype. And what we were able to show was that if we force you to look at least at two candidates at the same time and compare them, then you're much more likely to focus on performance rather than their demographic characteristics. So that's kind of the third insight. So unstructured interviews generally bad predictor of future performance. Secondly, uh, panel interviews, uh, bad way to go. Diversity on panel interviews, I should get back to that don't necessarily help you in your evaluations, they might. And this is now, I'm going to make it very clear, not based on evidence, just, um, just my own kind of introspection as academic dean, uh, previous academic dean. Um, it might affect who you call. Like many organizations, including Harvard, um, favors diverse selection committees, not necessarily because we believe that they do a better job in evaluating candidates, but because we believe that they have different networks. And you know, given, for example, that I'm European, I might be more likely to call someone at the LSE or the London Business School or Stockholm or Zurich or wherever it might be. So that's, so don't take this as diversity on these committees don't matter at all, but I have no evidence to prove that. But I'm giving you the logic that we're applying at least to our searches, our faculty searches here at Harvard, saying it's important because of the diversity of networks. Okay, so, um, just a little bit more on why interviews don't work. I thought you would smile. Um, 
So interviews generally don't work because we cannot help but be influenced by first impressions. And first impressions often, I'm sorry, first impressions are, <laughs> and first impressions um, typically have something to do with what you see. And one well-known uh, bias is called kind of the hollow effect. Here's one particular aspect of the hollow effect, which is the beauty premium. So it turns out that people tend to think attractive people are nicer, more trustworthy, and smarter. Uh, turns out that there's no experimental evidence, again, <coughs> supporting that this is in fact true. In fact, there's one particularly um, lovely experiment uh, showing that we expect people to, uh, attractive people to be more trustworthy, then we play a trust game with them, then we are asked to cooperate with them. Turns out they're just average, so they're not bad people, they're just average, but then we are so annoyed at them that we punish them. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so these interviews are, um, are difficult. Um, I thought that that was actually a struggle for me kind of to just kind of say, do away with interviews altogether, which I think is probably the scientifically right answer. Um, but at the same time, it's also scientifically, I think, justifiable to say, if we haven't been able to succeed the world, and uh, to, uh, to suggest to the world that they should do away with interviews for 50 years, maybe, maybe we should work with how people really are. And so there is also um, some research suggesting, but you don't have to read this, but I'm going to just quickly, that we can actually, um, again, not perfect, not, not close the whole gap, but we can get much more predictive um, accuracy when we have structured interviews instead of unstructured interviews. And there's, some, there's quite a bit of research kind of looking at how exactly do you do that, which I won't spend time on right now. But I am happy to say that I presented this for the first time in Australia where I spent a sabbatical last year in May. And I had the chief HR person of the Australian government in the workshop. And I just saw him again in London. And he came up to me and said, We've taken this, and we're doing this now for all of our hiring. And of course, I said, oh, wonderful, but aren't you running an experiment? But that didn't um, resonate with him, although I haven't completely given up on this. Um, but again, this is not rocket science. This is doing what people already are doing, spending half an hour or an hour of a job candidate a bit more intelligently, which helps them focus on people's merit rather than on their demographic characteristics, or being influenced by you know, whether they have the same hobby or not. Um, sociologists have, um, have um, uh, Professor Rivera is her name. I, I actually didn't know her before. Lauren Rivera has done really lovely work on kind of interviewing people of what they look for in interviews. And you would be shocked mm -hmm. of what people report. I mean, the general answer is, I look for someone like me. Um, or someone who shares the same hobby. Or, I mean, one, one of my favorite quotes in the book is, um, you know, I love stalking celebrities in New York. She does the same. We hired her. <laughs> so, um, happy to take a break here again. Um, and then I'll talk a bit about leaving um, talent management behind and talk a bit more about some examples of how we can redesign the environments in which we work, live, and learn. Hi, um, so I work in financial services, and some of the ways that we see this is in choices in terms of who you invest with or who you invest in. Yes. Um, I know of some fund managers who are actually 
<clears throat> score like adding bonus points to women entrepreneurs mm. because they say we know we do all of this we know we we rank them lower mm -hmm. and so we're going to at the end of all of our scoring give them a premium how does that that feels like a gender quota it feels mm -hmm. like it invites a ton of backlash but it also is it's a male fund manager who basically said i've read all the data i know that women are strong investable enterprises and i want them in my portfolio this is how i'm going to do it i'm curious how you would react to that and also how you would you know are other folks doing that kind of much more just deliberate saying this is a problem we're going to fix it in a different way right we use a hammer yes um so i'll, I'll talk a bit about hammers a bit later on when i talk about quotas and I, I will get to quotas as well um it, sadly and you know so first of all i've never heard of this it's very interesting very interesting not very interesting um I, so my gut reaction, which is of course bad, gut reaction, um, but is I, I'd be quite nervous about kind of how do we calibrate? I mean, do we give, I don't know, it's five points, two points, ten points? Um, so, so, so generally, what I'm trying to argue is that there are ways to help us base our evaluations on actual performance rather than on demographic characteristics without you know, kind of correcting for our biases as we go. Yeah. So I think my inclination would be to be skeptical, but I have I have not seen any research. I don't know, honestly. I don't know how, how it's working out. Sorry, I don't have a No, it is interesting. The other thing yeah. I'll say is that the um, in incubators and accelerators, where um, early stage finance often is very focused on a pitch deck, which is not uh, like an interview, very yeah. negative yes, way, yes, yes. those that actually use peer evaluation for the ranking and who ends up getting investing, end up investing in more women. Because it's, again, it's how do you see people over time as opposed to a one-time evaluation? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, one of the questions is blinding. Could one, I mean, I'm not clear why um, these evaluators need to know the gender of the entrepreneur who's trying to get money. That's another, I mean, another way to think about it, maybe. I, I wonder if, um, nice. and it's just a comment, but I wonder if the I look for someone like me is one of the reasons why the diversity training programs we're not seeing that that is working. Mm. Because if you're not, if you're looking for someone like you, then you're hiring people who are like you, and it essentially you will then not have the diversity in the workplace. So it's not that the training programs aren't valuable, which you share that you felt like they were, but it's because it's hard to break down that wall initially. Uh -huh. um, I think that's right. Um, again, I, I, I don't have very good evidence, but, but I, I do think, what, I mean, your intuition is probably the right one, that it is, even though many of the diversity trainings that I've looked at are trying to make people more comfortable with others, right? So that's kind of a, one of the objectives of many diversity training programs. And I should tell, I will tell you about one that, or I'll tell you about one that I think has actually been quite successful. It's very interesting. Um, Elizabeth Pallock, who is a um, psychologist at Princeton, has done a number of really amazing field experiments on diversity. Um, in, in the, the one that I talk about now is, is in Rwanda. And she's in particular, so she wasn't interested in corporations at all. Her focus really is how to make diversity work in the field, including in difficult places such as post-genocide Rwanda. And what she um, examined, this was a field experiment, um, were radio messages where people tried to talk, basically a diversity training of how 
um, Hutsis and Tutsis could, could live together. Hutus and Tutsis, I, I combined it. Hutus and Tutsis, yes, Hutsis. <laughs> Hutus and Tutsis uh, could live together. Um, and use many of the diversity kind of insights of other diversity training programs. And here's it's really interesting what you found. I thought it was really interesting. So um, what was special about Rwanda is that people typically listen to these radio programs in groups. So there's maybe one radio only or two in your village. So you come together and you listen to the program. And then the control group gets a health radio program. And then she follows them. Uh, first of all, does a survey afterwards. How do they feel about um, the, the Hutus or the Tutsis and intergroup um, marriage and things of that sort. And ha um, but then also collects behavioral data. Do they hang out with, um, with neighbors of different um, ethnic origin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so here's what she finds is it didn't change people's mindsets. It didn't change how people felt about the other ethnicity, but they all thought everyone else was really affected. So they thought social norms have changed. Now you cannot talk badly about someone from the other ethnicity anymore, uh, because clearly others would um, punish me if I did that. Um, even though they themselves reported in the interview, I still don't like them. And I wouldn't want my daughter or my son to marry them. But they reported that they thought that the village now thinks differently. And then she finds, and that's why it's such an interesting paper, that it actually changes behavior. But the behavior change doesn't go through mindset change, but it goes through to people's beliefs about what social norms are and the appropriate behavior are. And then I refrain from, to give you another example, from smoking, from smoking in restaurants. Not because I don't want to smoke anymore. Not because I haven't changed my mindset. I still think it's, it's stupid I'm not a smoker, but as an example of other research that has been shown that social norms are important. But because I've, I believe now, which is true in this country, social norms have changed on smoking. Now you can't afford to just light a cigarette in a restaurant because somebody is likely going to come up to you and say, excuse me, um, it's A, now illegal, but even before, it's inappropriate. And that's exactly how the mechanism works. So, it, it's, it, it is pretty intricate, you know, how these mechanisms, how diversity training can work. And I wouldn't say you, we can't, we aren't able to be comfortable and even be happy to be in diverse groups. I, I don't think that should be the message here. Even though I say people look for people like themselves. If I'm checked, you know, this is just people's gut reaction. People's gut reaction, a good, you know, professor looks like me because that's kind of what I have to go by, kind of intuitive. But uh, other research, for example, has shown that exposure to what I want to call outgroup members in classrooms or dormitories, which is kind of in, you know, where you live now, yeah. and dormitories has changed people's perceptions of race. This is particularly focused on race, wasn't focused on gender, but has made them more comfortable to interact across races. So for example, exposure to outgroup members can also help. This is a much longer discussion, which I, I can't conclude right now. But um, yeah. Uh, hi. So uh, I have a friend who works in in a small tech startup in Silicon Valley, and he was telling me about how, after learning kind of about these implicit biases, his company started doing things where when they were interviewing new candidates for hiring, um, they would at the outset. So they all took implicit association tests before, and then at the outset of the interview, they would say, "I want you to know, I understand that implicit bias actually exists." And 
here are some of those ways in which I am biased. Yeah. And then they do the interview. Yeah. I wonder. I was wondering if you had any, if you knew of any evidence of, of, of any anybody that any evidence that uh, any research around whether or not that works. Yeah. So I know the company. Um, it's actually not uncommon um, in Silicon Valley now. Um, I think the, I mean, tech companies have kind of realized that maybe 10% or 50% women is not ideal in their workforce. Um, so they're trying lots of things. And no, 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 I, I don't mean to be snotty about them, but it, amazingly, they try many different things, um, uh, being entrepreneurial in tech, and experiment with lots of stuff. So I have been learning tons from them. Now, in terms of uh, bias awareness, Unfortunately, I know nothing in terms of gender bias awareness or diversity bias awareness, but I know a lot about other bias trainings that I've alluded to before, which try to make people aware of their biases. Other biases, not gender bias. But for example, the self-serving bias that I talked to you before about does nothing. So generally, awareness, I wouldn't bet much money on the fact that just being aware of something you know, is going to help, help you. Having said this, I think awareness is the first step. So I'm not against people taking the implicit association test. Um, I think what it does is makes you curious, makes you, I mean, what it did for Google is that their chief HR person, um, Laszlo Bach, uh, learned about a study, a science study, that faculty are biased against them women in science, um, had every Googler take the implicit association test because he was convinced that data and was wondering whether something's happening in Google, found what everyone finds, that people are biased, and then it triggered his interest in behavioral science, lots of different interventions um, and experiments. So I think it, it's a first step, right? You kind of have to be willing to accept that bias exists. So I'm not saying awareness is not an important step. It's a very important step. Because if people just say, you know, I'm not, it's your problem, that's not gonna take us anywhere. But then you have to follow through with interventions that change the environment and help people's biased minds get it right. That's really my message. You know, change the environment to help our biased minds get it right, rather than trying to fix our minds. Okay. I might just continue just a little bit here, with two more, uh, not too much more, but just one example here, because it's um, one of my favorite studies, um, also a former student um, of ours, but uh, it, it is actually very important research. So this is Katie Baldiga Kaufman, um, who at some point came to my office actually asking the following question. I think women speak up less in class. Um, deep insight, uh, how can I test this? And so eventually we came to this. And, she, and what she did was she studied test taking. And why this is related to, to women speaking up in class, you'll see in a moment. Um, but here's what she was interested in. She said there are test environments where risk takers or people who are overconfident might do better on the test, including standardized tests in the United States. So the SAT, those of you who are from the US who have ever taken um, an SAT will know that part of the SAT is multiple choice. And it turns out that you can either answer the question if you know the answer, or you can guess volunteer an answer, check one of the boxes if you don't know the answer, or you can skip a question. Now, in the current SAT, which will be changed starting next year, um, there is a small penalty to offering the wrong answer, but if you can exclude one of the alternatives, some of you are nodding, you've all done the math on this, I'm, I'm sure when you took the test, you can exclude one of the alternatives, it's rational to guess. But 
there's tons of research suggesting that women are less willing to take a risk and less self-confident than men. Now, what she found was that women mm -hmm. skip questions, more likely to skip questions than men, and she could control in her experiment for what people would have known. But she can control for their ability, and she can show that equally able men and women behave very differently in the test because men who don't know the answer guess, and women who don't know the answer skip, and it costs these women 70 points on the SAT. Now, it's such a good, it's such good research and a good story because starting next year, the SAT will be gender devised. And lots of other differences uh, in the SAT starting next year, but number 10, the 10th difference that they're introducing, um, has to do with this finding. And it, what it, the new SAT is going to be doing, which is very controversial also, it's going to take all penalties completely away. And it's going to basically say, just guess. It was very, I mean, as you might imagine, very interesting. So Katie went back, thinking, what, what else could we be doing? What if we forced people to answer a question? That turns out that leads to other biases, more so in social class um, and background, that people who are forced are much, some people uh, with um, uh, certain demographic backgrounds, social demographic backgrounds, are much more stressed out when they're forced to answer questions. So time pressure has differential effects on different and groups of people, so eventually the SAT decided not to do that. But that, that would have been the alternative, just force everyone to answer the question, and we have, we have no gender bias. Um, what they now instead did is just take the whole thing away and just say, this is you know, better if you know, but otherwise just guess. Okay. So um, this is just one example. There's lots more that I could talk about. There's lots more research on redesigning the environment. But I want to give you one more, um, last one, on kind of the third topic here, and that's having to do with the Kennedy School uh, but also the world. So about 10 years ago, Jenny Mansbridge, who is professor here at the school and also the founding faculty chair of the Women in Public <coughs> Policy Program, noticed that there were zero portraits of women leaders on the Kennedy School's walls. There are only 60 portraits of male leaders, so, you know, 60 to zero is... Um, <laughs> so she decided um, I've been working with the Women in Public Policy program very closely to commission um, and convince the school. I mean, it wasn't hard convincing. I mean, everyone was like, oh my God, how could we have never noticed? Um, a, recent, by the way, a recent article in The Crimson talked about Annenberg Hall. I think they have four portraits of women out of, I don't know, many, many more. And then they, it describes how these are motherly figures and this and that. But anyway, so we don't have many, so we now have more. We've commissioned a number. This is Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia. And this is Ellen when she was here on campus. This is Jenny Mansbridge, David Elwood Dan Dean. When I was academic dean, had the kind of pleasure of unveiling the portrait. So I tell you this story because it actually is based on real evidence. That what you see matters. It matters what you think is possible for yourself. And it also matters in how you evaluate others. And a number of researchers have done amazing um, research in India, which to my mind, I'm going back to the hammer here to quote us, is the best quota evidence we have to date. In 1993, India amended its constitution with the provision that a third of the village head should be female. And what was beautiful from a research point of view was that the third was picked out of a hat randomly. So researchers such as Mohini Pande, but also Esther Duflo of MIT, but I have Mohini up here because she's a Kennedy School professor, so you get to know her as well, um, focusing on gender development um, in much of her work, and they were able to evaluate what difference does difference make. 
which in fact, by the way, you might think is an easy question to answer. It's a very difficult question to answer because typically these leaders aren't picked randomly out of the hat. So you get back to the selection problem that I mentioned initially. So um, they found lots of things, but um, most importantly for my point right here was that in villages, which in those 20 years, now more than 20 years, have been exposed at least twice to a female village leaders, stereotypes have started to change. So they went, uh, they did lots of different studies with these villagers, but one of them looked at uh, their implicit associations. And it turns out that after having seen uh, a woman twice, people are more likely to associate political leadership with women. And the last paper just published in Science, kind of the end of the happy story, is that now one of the key career aspirations of parents is for their daughters to become politicians in those villages which have seen kind of women leaders. Now this is an amazing story. In demographic terms, I mean, you know, we didn't think that we could shift kind of what people believe possible in 20 years, um, but this evidence kind of suggests that we can. And of course, these are quotas. Quotas aren't nudges, so aren't necessarily behavioral instruments. That's really a hammer, but they do have behavioral impacts. They shape what people imagine is possible, even though it might be rational for them themselves to believe that it's possible. I'll give you quickly one more study on India, which um, probably is my very favorite study, uh, but kind of making the same point, but also making the point that it doesn't necessarily have to be rational. And that is Rob Jensen. Rob Jensen is a former colleague of ours here at the Kennedy School. He's now at Wharton. And he exploited the fact that call centers moved into India in the 90s and preferably hired women. And what he did was he ran an experiment where he hired a company which provided training to women in about 200 villages to go and work as call center workers. And then he had a control group with 200 other villages where he didn't provide that training. And he wasn't primarily interested whether these women who got the training then would go and work in the call centers, but whether parents would start to treat their daughters differently, their zero to five-year-old daughters differently, because they now had some returns on economic investment. And this is a particularly important um, question for us because I just learned a couple of days ago that the number that I had in my book on the missing women in Asia was much too small. I used to say it's 153 million. The UN now estimates it's 200 million mm -hmm. girls and women missing because of sex-selective abortion or gendercide in the first five years. So that is huge. So providing economic opportunities, per se, of course, is important. But I think what Rob's study kind of shows is that only 2% 2.4% of these women actually then worked in call centers. That is a small number. But it changed how parents treated their daughters. They didn't, by the way, punish their sons. Survival rates increased, school enrollment rates increased for the daughters. They started to nurse them longer and the whole thing um, without hurting the boys. So seeing is believing um, for kind of rational reasons, but also for more behavioral reasons. Now, I want to end by kind of um, sharing with you an alternative to quotas um, and go back kind of to the corporate world. And um, Hannah and Kathleen's research has already suggested to us that transparency is really important, uh, but some other countries have also adopted this approach. So the UK uh, tried to avoid quotas. Those of you from Europe know that quotas are very real discussion 
in Europe, not just in Norway, which has introduced quotas, Italy, Spain, many other countries now have introduced quotas on the corporate boards, um, and the EU is still debating whether it should be EU-wide. UK tried to avoid this picture here, um, and Vince Cable, the UK Secretary of Business uh, and Innovation, approached us for help on behavioral insights. So I went to London, had a meeting. They, they already did like a ton of things, right? Um, they had learned a lot from the UK behavioral insights team um, already and used kind of nudges left and right. But let me tell you just one little, little example of um, kind of reframing the discussion, which goes back to my Rwanda example on social norms. This is a brochure that they have created. This is 2013. Um, the uh, program was uh, started in 2011 with the Davis Report. So this is 2013. It's a little higher already. We have 17%, that's the 17 women out of 100, 17% women on corporate boards in the UK. In 2011, they started with 11%. So they've made kind of big progress. They set themselves a goal to have 25% by the end of this year. Um, and as far as I know, they're basically there already. But that's their goal. So they have this brochure. And we looked at it at the Women in Public Policy Program with Carrie and suggested an alternative. Going back to the Rwanda example, rather than talking about the lack of women or the absence of women, we wanted to communicate that the thing to do today is to be gender diverse. Now, of course, you can't lie. But what you can do is take the same 100 companies, these are the FTSE 100, the largest companies in the UK, and talk about the companies which already have gender diverse boards. Right? This is now 94% of the companies already are gender diverse, that's one or more women, um, which kind of suggests a very different norm than 17%. Why am I concerned about that? Because there's lots of evidence in behavioral science, again, suggesting that what is a descriptive norm can turn into a prescriptive norm telling us what we should be doing. There's lots of examples. This is UN women, one in five parliamentarians is female. Typically, that's how, um, in particular, gender data is communicated. Dara, you hardly see anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm going to start, I'm so biased, right? So I'm going to be on this side of it. But I'm actually wrapping up now. Um, so if you're interested in this research, there is an online tool that the Women in Public Policy Program has created. It's called the Gender Action Portal. Uh, go visit it. It summarizes evidence, typically experimental evidence, but uh, more generally experiment, uh, evidence that allows us to make causal inferences on what, uh, what works to close gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And with that, good luck designing change. <laughs> for questions and then we have to wrap up. <laughs> well, this is a very local question, but um, what I was interpreting from your discussion of transparency early on in the talk was that people need the knowledge to know what other people around them are getting in terms of salary and so forth. So the local part of this question is we work at a university where salaries are not public. And uh, I had a conversation, I'm a department chair, and I had a conversation over lunch with one of my male colleagues several weeks ago in which he was very insistent that he's being underpaid. I have no idea because I don't know my senior colleagues' salaries, even though I'm the department chair, and I have very little input into what determines his salary. 
but I had another conversation about a week ago with someone, I mentioned this to another person, and that person happens to know how much he's paid, and I don't even want to know the first digit of this, because I think it's a different digit than my salary. Um, so you, how do you, how can anyone negotiate if you don't know what the rules are? Yeah. Or, so, um, I, I think I think it's a totally valid question. So, in the book, I which I won't describe now, but I describe what I tried to do on the other side of the table as academic dean, yeah. because it was actually very interesting an interesting dilemma for me that I knew all of this research and was negotiating with faculty members. That was my job, um, and I did have one female faculty member who accepted what I offered, and I had to go back to David the Dean and say I have to go back to her and basically add a bit more to a research account and do some things because but I can't live with salary. It. I can't live with the this. Base salary I can't live no no but even to the base salary so we changed so that's very unusual so I'm, I'm giving you this example because I mean I talk about this in the book at great length. It's a very interesting dilemma. So here yeah. I have the institution and money is scarce and da da and all of that. Right. And then I know the negotiation game and then women don't ask. Which of course I could have known. Um, but anyway, so we did go back to rechange the whole thing. But if it wasn't for someone like me, that would never have happened. Right. So that's just a little uh, the story part of it. Now, what I have to tell you, which is quite interesting and which may be encouraging for the uh, students here in the room, when I negotiated with assistant professors, they knew everything. Yeah. So at that level, they come to me with, here's the Stanford offer, here's the Princeton offer, sure. here's the Harvard offer, sure. here's in finance, here's in... But once you're in the system... Uh, you once you're in the system... So I think once you're in the system, um, bands might be helpful. What I can tell you about Harvard and many other academic institutions, um, I think almost every year, every two years, uh, Judy Singer's office collects all, yeah. yeah. all pay data and kind of scrutinizes it for all kinds of different biases, not just gender biases. Yeah. And then would go back to departments and say, look, here's the pattern that we found. You need to correct this. I'm a department chair. I've never been contacted by anybody. Wow. I'm starting my but maybe you don't have a problem. I'm not trying to be defensive. I'm not trying to be defensive of Harvard at all. Um, I'm just I'm just describing the kinds of things that we did, but I also have to tell. So one more story. There's so much unconscious or or, or you know unchecked. So one day I come to the office. Um, I had about 20 students in front of my office protesting against the lack of women faculty, and so I said, "Oh great, okay, this is my work. Let's meet. Let's talk." I mean, like like have 150 edges. Uh, no, no, no. It turns out that what they were what they were concerned about wasn't actually the number of women faculty, but the number of people in front of the room at the Kennedy School. So that includes fellows, includes staff, includes guests who come through, people who speak in the forum. So that's the first time anyone ever counted. So we counted. So our research centers have their own seminar series. So nobody ever checked who do they invite. So it turns out some research centers have a ratio of nine to one, you know, and then WAP, of course, has a different ratio. No, has a nine to one the other way around, but we're trying to. But it, so, it's an example of, I think, where counting can help. And then the, the research centers had to report it every, every January when they meet with the deans. Report what, what are the speakers, who are the speakers, um, and how, what, what have you tried to do, and blah, blah, blah. But it's another example where I think counting data can help. You know, in, to, what, to, to, 
to what degree, to, to what then granularity, which transparency should go. I don't know. I, mean, I look at Hannah and Kathleen. I don't have a very smart answer because at the same time, we also know that people are extremely loss averse. And if they know that they earn 5000 less than their colleague across the hallway, that feels like earning 50000 less. Um, so I don't, I don't have a very smart answer of how granular the transparency should be. Hannah or Kathleen, any thoughts? Uh, Not that I want to put you on the... Oh, okay, uh, well, on the I mean, we're, we're over the... I do have thoughts, but yeah. we're, we're, we're over the hour. <laughs> 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 I'm delighted to share them, but uh, the, um, we'll come back. I think I get to be on the spring or something. We'll, okay, yeah, yeah, answer I you come yeah, back promise for a long <laughs> answer in the spring. Um, but I want to wrap, but obviously, you're, you're igniting a lot of discussion, <laughs> practical and theoretical, and we're very appreciative. Thank you so much. For